I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about the new house outbound investment screening bill. We'll discuss pushback from developing economies on IPEF digital trade, and we'll revisit cross-border subsidy probes, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Hello, and thanks for listening to The Trade Guys. This is Trade Guy Scott, and with one last reminder that Bill and I offer a course in trade policy. It's called Trade Policy Crash Course with the Trade Guys. It takes you two days to get through it. Those days are coming up very soon. It's May 22nd and 23rd. We start at 9 o'clock. It's delivered online, so it doesn't matter where you are uh, in the country, but uh, it's a small group. We keep it to a seminar format, and we go through all of trade policy and trade politics in a couple of days worth of discussions. We'd be delighted if you are interested in signing up. If you want to do so, please check the show notes or go to csis.org slash executive education and look for our smiling faces. Thank you. Well, the smiling faces of the trade guys are always something that I want to see. And guys, welcome. I think this is going to be one of our wonkier trade guys episodes which our listeners love. So, you know, we're, we're going to keep it light, but it is going to be a little bit wonky. I have a feeling some rants are coming. I could just see it in Bill's scowl right now. Viewers, if you could see it. The steam would, coming would, out of my ears. Yeah, you would know it. Scott looks happy down in North Carolina. My oldest son is graduating this weekend from college, from University of Rochester. So this is a big weekend around the Schwartz family house. And uh, Are you going up for that? Yeah, yeah, we're leaving shortly, so should be really interesting. Cannot believe I have a son old enough to graduate college, but here we are. Life comes at you fast, Andrew. There's no question about that. Life comes at you fast, for sure, for sure. We trekked out to Chicago to see my older son get his PhD and become the most educated person in the history of my family, as far as I know. And Wow. It was cool. You know, he got to walk, he got the hood, he got the funny hat. I mean, the whole, the whole deal. That is a big deal. Congratulations to the Reinch family. Gentlemen, we have something called the New House Outbound Investment Screening Bill. I just want to get your sense on like, how is this bill different from the previous proposal we had seen in the Senate a year ago? Well, it's partly old wine and new bottles. There's a couple of changes. I think listeners probably know about this because we've talked about it so many times. It would set up a process for reviewing outbound investment. The previous versions were criticized for putting USTR in charge, which USTR made clear it and neither wanted to do nor had the capacity to do, and for painting with a very broad brush what investments might be covered and setting up a rather cumbersome bureaucracy. This new version, which has so far come from only from the House, Senator Cornyn and Senator Casey, who were the original authors of the earliest version, have not yet adopted this approach, but they may. It solves one of these problems and makes some other changes. It, although it doesn't, I don't think, solve it satisfactorily. It removes the chairmanship from USTR, which is a good thing. It invests it in the executive office of the president, which is a vague thing. And in fact, that's where USTR is. So you could argue that it, it may not really move it away from USTR. Plus, it raises interesting um, 
I wouldn't say constitutional issues as much as procedural issues. Normally, the executive office, the president, which means the White House, doesn't run programs. You know, cabinet agencies run programs. CFIUS, for example, which is inbound, is chaired by Treasury. And most federal programs are run, you know, by cabinet officers. Putting it in the White House is novel, and there will probably be some resistance to that from some members of Congress, some of who will point out that, generally speaking, members of the president's staff don't appear before Congress. Uh, they don't testify. You never see the National Security Advisor, for example, or the chairman of the Domestic Policy Council up testifying before Congress. They're considered the president's staff and not cabinet members. So there may be some pushback on that, although I don't think there will be anybody who says keep it in the USTR because I think that was debunked previously. The other thing that's probably more important is they've changed somewhat the list of affected entities, let's put it that way, and they've defined it as semiconductor, semiconductors, uh, semiconductor manufacturing, critical minerals, AI, quantum computing, large capacity batteries, active pharmaceutical ingredients, and auto manufacturing, which is a new one. This is probably an expansion from what the administration has been rumored to be considering in its executive order on the same subject, which was probably going to focus primarily on, on chips, quantum, and AI. So this is going to be bigger than that. And I think it's not going to satisfy the critics of the whole thing because it does contain in it a provision that allows the administration to expand that list if it felt national security was threatened. And that's really the problem with all of these things as they've come up, because you can, you know, everybody says we want to have a narrow targeted focus. That's what, you know, the authors of this would say. It's certainly what the administration has said. But then, you know, when you start talking about what's narrow and targeted, somebody always says, well, how do we deal with things that haven't been invented yet? How do we deal with emerging technologies? And the answer is, you put in a clause that says, and the president can add anything he wants if he deems it critical to our national security. The minute you do that, you know, you've opened the door wide to anything. And the whole argument about these bills were the chilling effect they were going to have on investment. And if you include that kind of clause, you're telling business, if you want to invest in anything anywhere, you better fly it past the government first and pass this 13 agency committee first to see what they say. So I'm not sure that it's going to, uh, the new version is going to satisfy any of the critics. And I don't think it's going to satisfy the administration, which has been pretty clear that it prefers a, a narrower approach. Well, I have questions. Yeah. And I think, I think it's appropriate that a lot of voters would have questions because the United States has never had an outbounding investment screening mechanism at all. We have an open investment for climate here in the United States. We are fortunate to receive foreign direct investment. We're fortunate to have, have firms with global interests that invest outside the United States because those firms are among our most competitive. So uh, look, investment's really important. And if you don't have investment, you probably are going to run out of room for economic growth because investment creates productivity gains. It makes people's jobs better. It makes them ultimately have a higher standard of living. So there's, this is not for free and it's not trivial. So my first question is, what's an American company? So I've noticed we have the auto industry or we have the auto manufacturing specifically as a critical national security concern. Now, for all those in our audience who ridiculed the previous administration, 
who conducted a National Security Section 232 investigation into automobiles and laughed heartily with comments like, you don't go to war with a Ford Fiesta. Are you laughing now? Because I don't really understand what you mean by the national security aspects of auto manufacturing. I also don't know what you think about Stellantis. Stellantis is, a, is one of the Detroit Three. It used to be Chrysler Corporation, but it's not an American company. In fact, it was a merger of French and Italian companies. It's now headquartered in the Netherlands. So if we're going to have all sorts of requirements on American auto manufacturers and their outbound investments, how do Ford and, and General Motors feel about Stellantis getting a pass? And why does that make any sense to achieve any sensible policy objection? Uh, I could go on, but I, but I won't. But this seems really silly. And I, I wish I understood better what we thought we had to have about the, what was the key national security driver that we create this mechanism that's so slipshod and, and it's got so many loopholes. And all it's going to do is annoy the people who have to have to comply with it or cause investment to go elsewhere. Well, Scott has questions, Bill. What do you think about this? It's a really interesting point Scott brings up. It points up a, an inconsistency that has plagued this bill from, from the be beginning, all the bills, not just this one. And you can see it in the different comments that the original proponents, Senator Cornyn uh, from Texas and Senator Casey from Pennsylvania have made. If you listen to Senator Cornyn, this is about national security. And he has pretty consistently favored a narrow approach that, that looks at things that actually are directly connected to U.S. defense and national security. If you listen to Senator Casey, it's a lot more about economic competitiveness. And he has favored a list of stuff where he thinks that we simply need to restore our manufacturing base to stay ahead for jobs purposes and for economic growth purposes, but not necessarily for security purposes. So yes, we don't go to war with a Ford Fiesta, but I think if you're Senator Casey, you would say it's really important that we continue to be able to make Ford Fiestas because that's a lot of jobs in the United States and it's an important industry that we care about. That, of course, raises the question, if that's your criterion, where do you draw the line? You know, and uh, Well, or, or more importantly, why is outbound investment screening a useful tool in achieving that objective? If you want more manufacturing in America, Write a tax bill, for goodness sake. And I think Senator Casey is is on the Finance Committee. Write a tax bill that incentivizes investment in manufacturing. That'll that'll do it. Okay. Well, other other members of Congress, like Financial Services Committee Chair Patrick McHenry, are also opposed to the mechanism. What's his argument? Yeah, that was uh, I was happy to see that, and they had a hearing on it, which was interesting because he sort of came out and said that he thought that basically it's a traditional long-time Republican position, and I, you got to give him some credit. It's not a, not a mega provision. What he said was, the free flow of capital is a pillar of our free market system. Instead of creating a new bureaucracy with broad authorities to undermine our free markets, we should work to strengthen existing tools to protect our national security without compromising our values. In other words, we should continue with an open investment policy, and I think he would subscribe to what Scott said, if you want to promote domestic activity, both sides of the marathon metaphor we've talked about before, promoting domestic industry is the running faster part. Uh, this bill is the hold the other guy back part. 
You know, what are we going to do to kneecap the Chinese in their effort to develop competitive industries? The irony, of course, if you look at autos, is they already have a competitive industry at automobiles. They're selling more cars every year than yes. we do. They're making more cars every year than we do. It is the largest market for cars, my goodness sake. And one where there's a huge American presence already. I, several years, I don't look at, I don't have the 2022 data, but several years ago, General Motors made more money in China than it made in the United States, mostly selling Buicks which are popular in China. So the economies are already integrated in that sector. Is there substantial investment already there? If the intent is to cut that off, you're going to do, I think, serious damage to the growth plans of the American companies and without affecting our security either. Well, look, you know, th this, is, this is something I think Congressman McHenry, Chairman McHenry is in the right spot here. They could have at least let Treasury chair this committee because that's what we've done with CFIUS since its formation in the 1980s, and Treasury chairs for a very good reason, is that inbound investment reviews are exclusively national security in their focus. And, and the Treasury Department ensures, because they are they manage our open investment policy and, and stand for it worldwide, stand behind it, I should say, worldwide, uh, Treasury will make sure that you stay focused on the mission. You don't have the kind of mission creep that can happen when you've got, who, who knows who chairs this committee? And, you know, I'm, I'm with Bill. You know, we do it to the Office of Management and Budget. That's the only other only other cabinet level job in the Executive Office of the President. I don't think so. So uh, we got some work to do. This is also, um, I think, a bit of a placeholder. There's, it's widely anticipated the administration is going to come out with its own proposal and the congressional attitude. Some people in Congress want to introduce these bills to push the administration to be more aggressive which I think is what this bill would, would do. I think others view it as backup, that the administration is going to do its thing and then Congress will react. And I think if they like what the administration has done, they'll try to codify it through a bill that, that reflects what the president decides. If they don't like what he's done, then I think they'll pursue this bill. So this is not the last chapter by any means. There's you know many more to come. Well, and we will come back to it for sure. But let's move on and talk about pushback from developing economies on IPEF, digital trade. What is going on there? There's a meeting in Singapore this past week. Why are developing economies pushing back on IPEF digital text? I thought this was going to be low-hanging fruit, and it turned out I was completely wrong. And this is going to, this is going to blow up and be a big thing. I was just talking to uh, one of our tech companies at lunch about this. There are multiple issues here, but you know historically the United States has favored free flow of data and provisions that enshrine free flow of data and trade agreements, basically meaning governments can't get in the way and impede the flow of data or, or censor it. And the U.S. has opposed data localization, which is the idea that if you're going to accumulate data in a country, you have to store it in that country and you can't send it anywhere else. And of course, if you're a financial institution, that is near fatal because if you are an international bank, you need to be able to move data around just like you move money around. And you, need, you want to have your data in a place where it's accessible to all of your branches everywhere because people bank in multiple countries and they, have, they store their money in multiple places. So it's been a big issue. We've got language that's fairly aggressive in the U.S.-Japan agreement. We have language that I think most people would say is pretty good in the U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement. And the expectation on the part of the industries, which means the tech industries who provide digital services, but also industries like financial services that, that, you know, that deal with data, the expectation was that we would be going 
in the same direction on IPATH and want fairly strong provisions. It turns out on the way to doing that, two things happened. Thing one is that it turns out that once again, the, the left wing in the Democratic Party doesn't want to do that. And they think that there are circumstances in which data localization might be okay and that we should have trade provisions that permit that. And they're a little bit nervous about circumstances of enshrining free flow of data in all circumstances. They want to provide, without being too specific, uh, policy options for getting in, the, getting in the way of both of those. And they're pushing the administration very hard to allow for that in the IPEF because they expect at some future point Congress will develop policies in these areas, because we don't have any right now, uh, like on privacy or on competition policy, and they don't want trade agreements that will tie Congress's hands. So this is controversial in the United States, and we are now discovering that some of the developing country members of IPEF are saying the same thing, Indonesia being the main one, because they have a data localization law that requires a lot of data to be stored in Indonesia if it's accumulated in, uh, in Indonesia. So while the developed IPEF members, Australia, Japan, Korea, Singapore, I think, or New Zealand, are fairly relaxed about this and, in fact, have entered into data agreements that have these provisions. The developing countries have not always done that. They've entered into agreements like RCEP that are weaker. Uh, and so they're pushing back. Uh, and I think this is going to end up being a, a much bigger problem for pillar one of the talks than the U.S. anticipated. Yeah, it looks to me like we waited too long to establish a policy that people could get comfortable with. Now, I understand this. If you're a government official, here's an area of technology that is moving at light speed. You can't predict the outcomes. You're amazed at what's happened. You had no idea that it would become this big a sector, that it would become this influential in the way society works. So I understand why you might be afraid of it. But we've gotten some principles out there in both the CPTPP, which is, does not include the United States, but also USMACA, which does, which work pretty well. And they basically, there's a presumption of no restrictions on cross-border data flow, except unless measures are, as it says, necessary to achieve a legitimate public policy objective. Now, that's where the door is cracked open. And what is a legitimate public policy objective? Well, there are lots of them. I would note that Canada considers censorship a public policy objective. They just enacted it in their Bill C-11. They also, uh, Canada also, our U.S. USMACA partner, believes that uh, it's a great public policy objective to prop up your state-owned media. So there's provisions for the CBC <laughs> they get special deals. Hey, have special so, shout out to shout out to all our Canadian friends and all our Canadian friends in the media, big time. Indeed, and so look, so that's that's a that's pretty broad flexibility. If you consider what was done recently last year in Bill C eleven, and look at the commitments in the USMCA, that's a pretty broad range of, on on the playing field. So I don't I don't know that seems acceptable to me, but it's causing a lot of problems where. Where countries, particularly countries like Indonesia, you have prior existing law that you need to change. And it just gets hard and it's changing so fast, nobody predicts it. Well, what are U.S. digital trade businesses worried about? Well, this ultimately, restrictions on data flows is really bad for innovation. And it's bad for scale and the kinds of things that make this technology 
economical, makes it beneficial to, to the operations of firms. And you know, the, our companies have long maintained the idea that it's really not where the data is stored as much as how it's, how it's handled. And rules about how it's handled are well within the, the scope of these kinds of things. And people want to handle it carefully, privacy protections, those kinds of things. But the flow of data is where the innovation lies. It's where the efficiencies lie today. It's where the innovation lies for the future. So that's the problem. Bill, any comment on that? No, I think Scott said it well. Okay, great. Well, let's move on then to the U.S. Commerce Department revisiting cross-border subsidy probes. What's this whole situation about? Can you like frame it for us here? Yeah, this is an oldie but goodie. Uh, in fact, for the wonks and the, uh, you said we were going to get wonky, and this is a good example. For the wonks in the crowd, we actually did a, a short piece on this in January of 2022 called Crossing the Line Transnational Subsidy. So if you really want to dig in, get a hold of that, go to our website and check that out. This is the issue of, of what constitutes a subsidy. And the way U.S. law has been interpreted since it, uh, this particular provision was most recent, well, was written in uh, the Tariff Act of 1930, although there's an earlier version that predates it. A subsidy is, is, something, is a benefit that the government provides to somebody in that country that makes their product, enables them to sell their product more cheaply or to manufacture their product more cheaply. It might be money. It might just be a grant. It might be a low interest loan, or it might be access to credit where they couldn't otherwise get it. It might be a tax credit. It might be free land for their plant, or it might be free electricity or discount electricity. It could be any kind of, you know, it's not just cash. And trade rules, WTO rules say that if you're provided a subsidy, that if the subsidy is linked to an export, it's a prohibited subsidy under WTO rules. That means, for example, if the U.S. were to say, the government will give you one cent for every chip you export, that's a prohibited subsidy because that says it's tied directly to the chip. And there have been some of those over time. There aren't very many of those anymore because people have gotten the hint. Then there are countervailable subsidies, which means that under the trade rules, you can, if you're a a country that's being hurt by these, you can go after them uh, if somebody in your country has been injured and you have to prove, establish injury. That's why we have an International Trade Commission in the United States to, to review that. Uh, historically, the United States and, and actually most other countries, although the EU has just begun to change this, have said, you know, the subsidy has to be given by the government of the recipient. So country A gives subsidies to people in country A. And the reason that was done, this is all, a lot of this was developed as far as the WTO was concerned, or the GATT was concerned, post-World War II. The reason that was done is because the developed countries wanted to make sure that things like the Marshall Plan and World Bank loans and foreign aid programs didn't get interpreted as subsidies, because that would really be like giving with one hand and taking with the other. You know, we're going to give you money. And then we're going to tax your imports because we gave you money, you know, and taking away the benefit with the other hand. So the idea was, let's just go after subsidies that those governments, that a government provides its own people. And if you read the law, and I'm, there are lawyers listening to this, I'm sure, that are going to send me a note saying that I'm wrong about this. And so that we'll have a debate. If my reading of, of, the, of the law, which is Section 701 of the Tariff Act of 1930, is that it doesn't really say that the subsidy can only be in the country of the government that's giving it. It doesn't say that. And what the Commerce Department has done is picked up on that 
and suggested that it may be, they've proposed, it's not done yet, they've proposed a rule that will permit them to look at subsidies that country A grants to people in country B or C or D. And the reason is primarily China's Belt and Road Initiative, where China is financing the construction of all kinds of things in other parts of the world with subsidized loans, not usually grants, but there may be some of those in there too, subsidized loans. Some of those things are for construction projects like building a bridge or an airport, but some of them will be for making things. And those could be, and, and some of them will be for plants, manufacturing plants that, that are maybe subsidiaries of Chinese entities, but they'll be in Ethiopia, you know, or pick a country, you know, Kenya or Thailand, but they'll be the better, they'll exist because of Chinese subsidies. So commerce wants to be able to go after those. And that's the purpose of the change. It's a rule. And so there's going to be a healthy period of comment on it. And we'll see what we'll see if uh, the lawyers come in and say, you can't do this. But it's an interesting expansion of rules. There have been a number of other proposed expansions over the years that I think are of questionable legality. I think this is an easier one to justify under current law. Although I have no doubt that if commerce goes ahead with it, somebody on the Hill will introduce a bill that would legitimize it. And, and try to tuck it into a trade bill just to make sure there's no doubt. You know, this will make, it's not just interesting, it'll make for some really uh, hilarious international meetings. But when the trade minister from Ethiopia questions the European community's representatives about it was okay for you to get the subsidies to rebuild your industries in the Marshall Plan in the 40s, that's okay. And now it's a problem because we got subsidies to rebuild our infrastructure because shut up. You know, <laughs> I, that's, I think that's, that's the way I'd put it. So it's going to be interesting. But in any case, there's one other wrinkle the bill didn't mention. Most subsidies are what subsidy is anything of value, but subsidies are actions taken by the government. There's also a proposal to work on things that the governments didn't do. And that's the one that I'm curious about, which is there's a proposal that if there's a likely impact on the price of goods because of result of weak, ineffective, or non-existent property, human rights, labor, or environmental protections, that you can exclude those goods for prices from an analysis, I guess. Now, there's a lot of things in that list that some people would say are undone in certain places in the United States. Let's say Georgetown, Kentucky. Georgetown, Kentucky makes is the home of the Toyota Camry, which happens to be the car with the most U.S. content. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a model that's exported to other countries. But Kentucky is a right-to-work state. There are many in the union movement who would consider right-to-work laws to be an impairment of labor rights. Okay, they, make, they made the argument when the voters accepted it. Now, would that be a, a countervailable subsidy? And how would the U.S. feel about that? I raise this as a hypothetical because trade rules need to be reciprocal. And we need to think through when we want to put new rules on products of other countries imported to the United States, we ought to be able to accept those rules on our exports into their markets. So there's a lot going on here. This is a real case that came up in the steel industry with the environmental issues. The United States makes relatively greener steel than other people. I wouldn't call it completely green, but compared to some other countries, one of the reasons is because we have a lot of electric furnaces which melt scrap, basically recycle the steel as opposed to making it from you know iron ore and coke, and which produces a lot more emissions. 
But, you know, the steel industry has pointed out over the years that we do this and we produce cleaner steel. Our costs are higher. And countries that don't have any environmental rules or have weaker environmental rules go ahead and make dirtier steel and can underprice us. And so the steel industry has long argued that that should be the absence of environmental rules should be considered a subsidy because it effectively allows the other country to produce more cheaply. And, and they're right about that. The question of where you draw the lines is is harder. You know, are you going to, when you're doing it with right to work versus union, that's a lot more complicated question, I think. Well, guys, as always, it's been a pleasure. We'll be back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.